Well, we've been studying through the book of First Timothy. And First Timothy, as I've said again and again, is a pastoral epistle. It was a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a man by the name of Timothy, who he was sending to a particular community. I need you to go there, be in charge of that particular location, and these are the things I need you to do when you get there. I need you to teach the people these things. I need you to make sure this is happening. I need to make sure these things aren't happening, and so on. And as we came to chapter 5, Paul got really practical with Timothy, uh, not so much in say these things and do those things, but how to do it. And so he spent a lot of time in chapter 5, look, when you're dealing with older people, deal this way. When you're dealing with the younger people, deal with them in this particular fashion. Really good advice from an older guy that had been in the faith and been in the ministry for a long time to this younger guy that's been in the faith. And as we come now to chapter 6, Paul is going to give Timothy some direction regarding an issue that probably would have impacted 90% of the congregation, if not more than that. And as I think about it in the context of our congregation, I bet it, it impacts, and you'll see the connection that I make, about 90% of this congregation. And that is employees. How many of you work for someone and love it with all your heart? You know, you probably do. All right, hands back down. Alrighty. Most of us at some point in our lives either will or do or in the future will work for someone. And does it matter if you're a Christian? Will you be a different employee than if you were not a Christian? And I hope, thank you, I hope the answer is yes. That God cares about these things. A lot of times we think that, you know, God cares about what happens in this room. Maybe God cares about what happens in my house with my family. God cares immensely what kind of employee you are. And if you happen to be an employer or a manager or a business owner of some sorts, he certainly cares about how you do that job as well. But today we're going to focus a little bit about what it means to be a follower of Christ and how that should impact your, uh, your day in and your day out uh, at your place of work. And so I'm going to read the entirety of our passage today. Are you with me? It's two verses. We're going to read two verses together here because, you know, I don't want to take too much. You know, two should be enough for us. So let's go. It says, Now let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers, Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and they are beloved. Now he begins, and he says, let all of those who are under a yoke as bondservants, or at least that's how the English Standard Version uses the word. They use the word bondservants. Some other versions, NIV, I believe, will use the word slaves. And so Paul, that, that's, we know what slaves are. Bond servants, what exactly is that? A bond servant is a slave. And so Paul here is addressing the slaves that attended the congregation or would be attending the congregation that Timothy would be teaching at and would be pastoring over. And the early church was quite familiar with the institution of slavery. Being as it was a product of first century Rome, Rome pretty much controlled the known world, certainly this portion of the world, and slavery was rampant in the Roman Empire. 
And so the Christian faith, beginning as it did around 30 AD or so, the Christian faith began in a social setting where slavery was quite commonplace. It's estimated that there were about 75 million people in the Roman Empire, and it's also estimated by historians that as many as two-thirds of those individuals in that empire either had been slaves at some point in their life or they were presently slaves. And so 75 million people, about 50 million people either had been a slave or they presently were living life and serving as a slave. Historians tell us that during this empire, that in many cases, there were more slaves than there were free men in the empire. And so, of course, obviously then, it's not surprising that Paul is going to raise this issue with Timothy as to how he should address those members of his congregation those that would be or had been in the um, system of slavery. Now, there are a lot of folks that criticize the Bible for what it has to say, or I, I think actually more properly, what it does not have to say about slavery. One thing you should know is this, that the system of slavery during the Roman Empire, and even during the period of Jewish history we have chronicled in our Old Testament, that the system of slavery in the Old Testament, in the New Testament era, was very different from the system of slavery that probably many of us have in mind when we think of slavery. And so I imagine many of us, when we, we think of slavery, we think of the 1800s in America. We think of the events that led up to the American Civil War. That's a type of slavery that is referred to as chattel slavery, where the slaves were nothing more than animals, uh, essentially, is how they were approached by their slave owners. Roman slavery in the first century it wasn't great. You were still a slave. But in, the real, in reality, it was far more humane and civilized than the slavery that was practiced in this nation and in much of the Americas in the 17th through 19th century. Other than those in the Roman system, other than those that, are, were, that were acquired through battle, so when the Romans would come in, they'd defeat someone and they'd take people back and make them slaves, other than those that were acquired through battle, slaves were not kidnapped individuals that were forced into slavery, as we saw in the system of slavery in our nation. Many individuals, interesting, in the Roman system of slavery, many individuals actually sold themselves into slavery because it was an opportunity at advancement in society believe it or not, because it would put you in certain circles and eventually you'd be getting your freedom and you'd be in those circles and you could advance in society. And so contrary to slavery in the Americas, slaves under first century Roman law, they could generally count on the fact that they would eventually be freed from their slavery. That's called manumission. And eventually it was pretty much the norm that at some point in time they would be freed from their slavery. Almost 50% of all slaves in the Roman Empire were freed by the time they were 30 years of age. And many of them were very highly educated uh, for the slave role that they would play. For instance, we have our New Testament books of Luke and our New Testament book of Acts, which were written by Dr. Luke, the slave. He had been a slave. He got, it seems he got his freedom to basically buy his slave owner to go and serve Paul not be a slave of Paul, but go serve Paul. All right, so the, it's important, I think, for us to understand. People, I can't believe the Bible doesn't speak out against slavery in that regard. Well, we're, we're thinking of two different things here, remember. 
the slavery then in the Roman Empire and even in the Old Testament era was much more akin to, in our history, what was known as, um, and I say our meaning Americans, and if you're not native of here, maybe you're not familiar, I, I really don't know how your, your, the country of origin operated, to be frank. Um, but it's much more similar here in the United States to what we refer to as indentured servitude, where a person saw a goal, and the way to get to that particular goal was essentially to sell themselves into servitude for a period of time. And we, I, I didn't know this, I came to discover this, over about almost one half of the 450,000 European immigrants that came to America leading up to the American Revolution came to America, almost half of those 450,000 came to America as indentured servant, uh, servants. I didn't know that. Uh, but they saw an opportunity ahead of them, and the only way they would be able to get to that is to sell themselves for a period, usually seven years, I'll come and I'll work, what we might call as a slave, for a period of seven years so that I can gain my freedom. That's what the Roman Empire's slavery was much more akin to. It wasn't based on racism. It was much more economic and political reality of the ancient culture. Now again, that's not to suggest that it, it wasn't evil. I don't think slavery in any form is right, and I imagine you don't either. And so that's not to suggest that it wasn't the wrong thing to be occurring. Human beings were still being bought and sold and traded and things of that nature. But in your mind, please make sure you have a very different understanding of what I'm talking about today when I talk about slavery than what you might be picturing from your study of American history. Depending on the circumstance, some slaves in the Roman Empire had more privileges than others. But again, slavery was still slavery. And the legal status of the first century slave was still they were considered a piece of property of another person. The slave in the Roman system, just like here in America, had absolute and unrestricted authority over their lives of their slaves. The slaves were required to do, perform the duties that were assigned to them by their master. And in fact, in the eyes of the law, the slave was not legally even considered a person. Now, while the Bible never commands slavery, in fact, it does permit it, and it does regulate it. What we do not read is of any movement on the part of Jesus or any movement on the part of the apostles in the New Testament to overturn the institution of slavery. The closest thing that we have is the book of Philemon, which I might recommend as supplemental reading to our study today that you might go and you might look at. Because the book of Philemon is the story of a gentleman that was a slave, that ran from his master, ended up in a prison of some sorts where he came into contact with the Apostle Paul, and it seems, I am assuming, the Apostle Paul led him to the faith. We know that he became a Christian. And then Paul, in his conversations with this fellow, finds out, I know who your master, I know that guy, I know who he is. The, the slave was a man by the name of Onesimus. He said, I know Philemon, I'm going to write him a letter for you. Now Paul's letter doesn't say, I can't believe you, Onesimus, or Philemon, that you would do these things, you're a horrible person. He appeals to him. He says, look, this fellow Onesimus, Onesimus, by the way, means useful. He says, this fellow has become very useful to me here in prison. And I'm not going to tell you what to do, but, man, he could sure help me. The idea, the idea being, if you let him go, 
But Paul doesn't command that. He doesn't demand that at all in that situation. The abolition of slavery was not the chief goal or calling of the Lord or his apostles. The chief concern of the Lord and the apostles was the advancement of the message of the good news. It was the gospel of Jesus Christ. That was, the advancement of that was their chief goal. Because God had a higher purpose than simply freeing slaves. His purpose was emancipating sinners. And social reform was not Paul's goal in the New Testament in his letters. It wasn't Peter's goal. It wasn't James's goal. It wasn't John's goal. That wasn't their primary mission. Spiritual regeneration was. And that God would be glorified in the completion of that mission. That was their goal. And notice what Paul says at the end of verse 1. He says, Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, notice, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. That was Paul's chief goal in this letter, and the others that I mentioned, James, John, Peter, and the other New Testament writers, is that God's name wouldn't be reviled, or to say it conversely, that God would be glorified and that God would be honored. And so here's Paul's philosophy on social reform, which I think that we should apply to the society we live in. Are there a lot of things in our society that need to be reformed? Yes. Our, our society, our culture, has some social problems that need to be dealt with. We have things like alcoholism. We have things like drug, abuse pro, uh, drug problems in our society. We have things like abortion in our society. All kinds of problems in our society that need to be remedied, need to be dealt with. What's the best way, according to the Apostle Paul, for us to solve those problems? Paul's philosophy was change the heart and you will change the practice. Born again people live differently. They have a new heart. And you'll note that Paul, he was absolutely correct in that approach. And you note that by observing from history the way in which as nations receive the gospel, almost always slavery gradually faded away in those nations. And the point is, as more and more people's hearts were changed, the freeing of slaves and scores of other social issues would follow. And so that's Paul's approach here. It's not social reform, it's heart reform. And so rather than speak out against the social evil of slavery, what Paul instead does is he addresses, addresses here how enslaved Christians how they are to act toward two different types of individuals. And that's what we're going to look at today in verses 1 and 2. The unsaved master, so how's the Christian slave supposed to respond to the, his unsaved master? And then the second type of person is, how should the Christian slave respond if he has a saved master? We'll address the first in verse 1. And he draws the contrast in, in verse 2 which helps us to understand that indeed there is a contrast. So notice verse 2 quickly. He says, And those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are fellow believers and so on. And see the contrast there as it begins? So verse 2 is going to be about how to respond to those that have believing masters. So therefore verse 1 must be how to respond to those that have non-believing or unbelieving masters. You're good. You're paying attention as you read. Very important. So verse 2 is how the enslaved Christian should respond if the master is a fellow believer. Certainly, 
the specifics of the command are important. You should do this, you should do this, you should do this. But I think even more important when we see the commands of Scripture is the reason for the command. Not just do this, do this, do this, and you'll be good to go. Because I think you can do this, do this, do this, and have a bad heart in the whole process. And the Lord's like, no, go back and start again. Try it again. All right? And so I think it's very important to see, all right, what, why does Paul tell me to obey my unbelieving master? Why does he tell me to obey my believing master? And we're told that at the end of verse 1, so that the name of God and the teaching of God may not be reviled. That's Paul's chief concern, is that God would be honored or that he would not be reviled. And if that's Paul's chief concern, as students of the Apostle Paul, that should be our chief concern as well. I don't want to do anything at my place of business that I work at that's going to bring dishonor to God. Not to me necessarily, but to God. I don't want his name to be reviled in any way. I don't want the teachings of the Christian faith to be reviled in any way because of my actions at this particular place of business. Now, of course, I know we do not find ourselves in a system of slavery as those in first century uh, Rome did. I, that being said, I think the practical implications of these instructions here, I think we can carry it over and apply it to all sorts of areas of our lives. Because every, all of us, in some way or another, are almost certainly in this room subservient to somebody else. Not me. You know, I'm retired and I'm living a good life. Or whatever, maybe. All right? But most of us, if we're kids to our parents, husbands and wives to one another, mutually submitting to one another as it teaches us in the scripture. Many of us, we work as employees. Many of us, we're the boss, but we got another boss, even if it's the the stockholders or whatever it might be. So all of us, somewhere or another, are answering to somebody. And we can make an application here of how we are to respond in that particular circumstance. But I, I think the most applicable application is the employer and employee relationship. And so in our culture, the question isn't so much how should a Christian slave act toward their master. In our culture, I think it would be, how should a Christian employee act toward their employer? And that is what I was saying earlier. I, I imagine applies to 90% of us or so in this room. And so, supremely concerned about God's reputation, about the effectiveness of the gospel, Paul says this once more, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants, regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. Now, whether it should or shouldn't, the reality is that the believer's attitude and behavior in their daily reactions or relations with other people, in this case at work, it will affect how people perceive the Christian faith. If they know you're a Christian, your daily interactions with those other individuals will affect what they think about the Christian faith, the Christian God, whether it's something worthy of them giving consideration to or oh, they're just all a bunch of hypocrites. Now, whether it should or shouldn't, it will. People are going to look at you. And so those Christians who fail to honor their employers or those Christians that are disrespectful of their employers they will cause God and the truth of our faith to be spoken against. Such a response, lack of respect, lack of honor, whatever it might be, such a response will lead both employers 
and your co-workers questioning, well, what kind of God must their God be if he allows them to be disrespectful, unhonoring, if that's a word, lazy, only doing stuff when the boss is around and not just being a good worker all together. It will cause them to begin to wonder what kind of God, what kind of faith is that all together? And it will also likely have the effect of causing others of the group to question the reality. You, you, you talk about Jesus Christ changed your life. You talk about the power of God to help you in all circumstances. And then I see the way you grumble. I see the way you talk about people. I see the way you only give half effort when people are watching, when the boss is watching. But once he or she leaves, you know, you're partying it up, you know, whatever it might be. I see. All right, people take notice of that. And so our behavior then at work can negate our Christian testimony and our desire to win people to Christ with our testimony. And notice, without a word. You don't have to say a word. You just have to live your life in such a way people are observing. Now, as I said, the first group that Paul addresses is the unsaved master. And Paul, he says that in such circumstances, believers were to regard these non-Christian masters, he says there in the middle of the verse, uh, as worthy of all honor or respect. Notice, Paul doesn't qualify that in any way. All right? Your Christian employer or your uh, employer is worthy of all honor. Now, a lot of times I think we qualify it. Our Christian employer, our employer is worthy of all honor if he's a good guy. Then I'll give him honor. If the guy is a good boss, the gal's a good boss, then he or she is worthy of all honor. Paul doesn't say here, he doesn't qualify in any way. So he doesn't say, well, if the guy pays you really well, then he or she is worthy of all honor. He doesn't say, if he respects you, then you will respect him. He doesn't say that at all. Well, he simply says, because you are under the yoke to him, you should regard him as worthy of all honor. And that means that regardless of how you might feel about the person, or persons if you work for a bunch of people, as a follower of Christ, that means it is your responsibility, and it's my responsibility, to honor and to respect the person nonetheless. So the determination to give that person respect and honor, or that they are worthy of honor, it's based on an objective criteria, not a subjective feeling. That's not how you feel about the person at all. It's an objective criteria. They're the boss, not an internal feeling. Well, I like them as my boss. The person in Paul's day was, in our day, is to be honored, not because they were necessarily honorable, but simply because of the position that they hold. And unfortunately, what Paul was observing and noticing here in this first century is that there were some Christians that were using, and again, two-thirds of the people were in some form of slavery at some point in their lives here, but there were some uh, enslaved Christians that were using sort of the newfound freedom that was theirs in Christ as an excuse to sort of dis to go ahead and start disobeying their master. And Paul's instruction to Timothy is, look, Timothy, you're, you're going to be the leader of this congregation. You need to ma make sure that you're teaching this congregation that their spiritual freedom in Christ 
all of us are equal at the cross, right? Not necessarily all of us equal at our place of business. He or she's the boss, and, and I just got here, you know, and I'm still sweeping floors or whatever it might be. Their spiritual freedom in Christ did not alter their social position in life. And, and part of the problem, it's not even a problem, but part of how they went down that avenue, there's a scripture, Galatians chapter 3, it says that there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. Love that verse. Hang that one up on my wall here. That's what they were doing. Neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female, for you were all one in Christ Jesus. That's what the scripture says. What it doesn't mean is, is that all social distinctions have been eradicated and are gone. Because there were still males and there were still females. There were still Jewish people and there were still Greek people. And there were still slaves and there were still free people. It didn't mean that all social status was erased. What it means is, you can read it, is at the foot of the cross, whether you're a slave, you're a freeman, whether you're a Jewish person or a Gentile, whether you're a man or a woman, at the foot of the cross, we're all equal. And every one of us can come to God through Jesus Christ. And I don't have to put something on. I don't have to become something I'm not. I can come to the cross, and Christ paid the price for my sin there. And he welcomes me into his presence. Not as a guy that has to sit in the back of the room, but a guy that can come right up and sit in his presence. That's what Paul is talking about there, because in the book of Galatia, Galatians, there were those that saying, if you want to be a good Christian, you've got to become a Jewish person to be a good Christian. And Paul's like, no, you're negating the gospel by teaching that. That's what Paul is addressing here. But there... There were believers that were beginning to interpret this. And remember, they would go off to church. They'd sit in a room like this, and there'd be some that were slaves. And, you know, I got to get out of here by a certain time because I got to be at work. And then there were others that were the slave masters sitting side by side. Remember, I talked about uh, Luke himself. Luke was probably a leader in a lot of the congregations he found himself, or we might call him a lay leader. And he was a person that had come out and was technically still a slave. And so you could find yourself in a situation where one of the elders of the church was a slave. And the slave master was one of the members of the congregation who had to show honor and deference to that slave. Now it's Monday morning, or I guess in their context, Sunday morning or whatever. It's the first day of the week. What's that relationship going to look like down at the place of business? Can this guy say, well, you know, I'm an elder, so I'm in charge? Well, not here you're not. You know, I need you to do what you always do. Get in there and stock that shelf and so on. Are you with me? I feel like I'm rambling a little, but you're with me on that? <laughs> Believers then and now are to have respect and the correct assessment of the authority of their employers regardless of how they might feel about them. And the teaching of the apostles is clear. Even if the masters are bad, even if they're harsh, even if they're not very good and kind of how they kind of approach leadership, they were still superiors. And because of their role as superiors, they were to be regarded as worthy of honor. Here's what, here's what the Apostle Peter said. He said this in the book of 1 Peter chapter 2. He said, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are reasonable, or excuse me, who are unreasonable. That's a big distinction. Sorry about that. For this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience toward God, 
a man bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. So even if the master was unreasonable, was harsh, was unjust, and you honor God while you are working there and you show your respect to that individual, what Peter's point is, the Lord sees that and he takes notice of that. This finds favor. You are doing the right thing before God. So even if you have a harsh master, Peter here says, regard those, their masters as worthy of all honor. That's what Paul said in the First Timothy passage. That word regard, very important word. I, I think maybe one of the most important words of our text today. They're all important. But it's one of the most important because of what it means. Some versions will translate this as count. Count them worthy of all honor. It's a word which means to lead the way. It's a word which means to lead before the mind. And so your mind says, I'm not honoring that guy. No, the way they treat me around here, I'm not doing it. That's what your mind says. Your will says, I'm going to do it because God tells me to do it. You lead the mind. You lead, and then the body as well will follow after. So it conveys this idea that a slave, an employee, is to control how we respond to our master. And that way, even if the master is unreasonable, he can still be honored and respected for the position that he or she holds. Our emotions don't have to control our behavior. I think that's an important lesson that we can apply to every circumstance we find ourselves in, is that our emotions don't have to control who we are and how we respond. We can submit our will to God and respond in that way as he would lead. Now, is that hard to do? Come on, those of you that said no, where are you, where are you from? Is that hard to do? Absolutely. You know, I just want to give them a piece of my mind here. Or you know what, I'm going to become a bad employee, and then they'll fail as a manager, and then they'll be out of here. And you probably will be too. All right? It, yes, it's hard. It is hard to submit ourselves to God to do something we don't want to do. Let's just all be honest here with that. We know that. Does God empower us to do it? He does. So yeah, Somebody said absolutely. Important that we all know that. He will empower us. He will never put us into a circumstance where he does not provide a way of escape. He'll provide us all the strength and the power that we need to accomplish what he is. Somebody has said this, and it's a very good little phrase to memorize, is that the commandments of God are the enablements of God. If God's going to tell you to do it, he'll empower you and enable you to do it if you're willing to submit yourself to him. So yes, it's hard. And I suspect it was a whole lot harder to the slave that had no other option. And what I mean by that is this, you can always start polishing up your resume and you can always start looking at other places to go and work. And you can say, you know what, yeah, this guy, I'm going to respect him, I'm going to honor him, I'm going to work hard for him, but I'm getting out of here in a couple of months because I have some other opportunities that are lined up and I'm going to see if I can find a better employer. The slave didn't necessarily have that option and yet they were, also, they were called to be an honorable uh, employee as they worked for their employer. The point is this, as long as you remain at that place of business, it's your responsibility as a follower of Christ to represent Christ well at that place of business. And the simplest way that you can do that is to respect those you work for and those you work with. 
It's not even about, I've got to tell every single person here about Jesus. They probably know who you are, and they're just going to watch. Be a good worker. As a follower of Christ, I think this is an important lesson for all of us, and and I I think I learned it early, and I've tried to live by it in the last 30-some years. As a follower of Christ, every single area of our lives should be impacted by that reality, is that I'm a Christian. And so I want to be a different husband because I'm a Christian. I want to be a different dad than I would be had I not been a Christian. I want to be a different employee had I not been a Christian. I want to be a different employer as a boss than if I hadn't been a Christian. I want to live in my neighborhood differently because I'm a Christian and treat my neighbors that are around me differently because I'm a follower of Christ. Every area of our lives should be impacted by the one we say we're following. He should be able to speak into every single area of our lives. And here, Paul is clearly making the point about work. And so as Christians, I think it's important for us to have sort of this biblical theology about our work lives. People will judge our faith based on how we conduct ourselves as workers. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, here's the solution. Don't tell anybody I'm a Christian. All right? I won't, then I could just be like everybody else, you know? And they won't judge me, and they won't judge God. That's not the solution. Right now, we're putting Christian fishes on all of your cars outside. So, so that you can't not tell people. They'll know. The solution, of course, is that each of us should be assessing this. Am I leading people? to think about God positively and maybe even come to God? Or am I leading them away? That's, that's a tough thing to think about, isn't it? And hopefully our conclusion is, you know what? I bet when I do this and this, that that's probably leading them away. I should stop doing this and this. And, and I imagine some of you are going to be like, you know what? When I do this and that, I bet that leads them toward it. I'm going to keep doing more of that. Now, I'm not telling you we all have to walk away with a negative assessment. But I think it's important that we take assessment right? Are people drawing nearer to God or further away from Jesus because of my work ethic? I mentioned earlier this idea of a biblical theology of work. Do you know that work, if you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, that Adam worked in the garden before the fall? I think a lot of times we think of work as like, oh, it's part of the penalty of the fall. Now, it does say that work's going to be more challenging more difficult. He's going to be out there trying to plow the fields and there's going to be thorns and all that stuff that he had to deal with. But Adam was given a job to do before sin and the consequences of sin entered into uh, our society. And so whereas many assume that work is the result of the sin of Adam and Eve, the reality is God gave him a task to do even before, which that tells us that work is a sacred duty. It comes from God. God would have us to work. Work is a sacred duty, and we can bring God honor and glory, which indeed we know is the chief duty of all men, that we can bring him honor and glory through the work that we do. And so with that, I just want to, the last few minutes that we have together, I want to kind of make our way through some passages in scripture that talk about how we should work. This is what the apostle Paul wrote to the church in Colossae, Colossians, the book of Colossians, He said this, he said, servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh 
not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. No matter who we work for, these are my words, no matter who we work for, we ultimately would work for whom? The Lord. And we should give the Lord both glory and honor. So here's a couple of questions. Do you, do you work harder when the boss is watching uh -oh. <laughs> than you do when he or she is not watching? Do you work harder when the boss is watching or is around or is in the other room than when he or she is not around? If the answer is yes, don't lie, friends. This brother didn't. If the answer is, that's what Paul means when he talks about serving with eye service. That's what he means when he says being a man pleaser. Continuing on in that verse, verse 23, when you do work, do you do it heartily? Paul says, whatever you do, do it heartily to the Lord. Now, heartily is not a word you use very often. Heartily means wholeheartedly. It means sincerely genuinely, enthusiastically. Put that one down. Monday morning's coming tomorrow, folks. Are you going to go in enthusiastically? It means vigorously. It, it very simply, heartily has this idea of you give 100%. And so you go back to the question that I posed in a, moment, a moment ago. Do you give 100% to the job that you do? Do you do it enthusiastically, vigorously, genuinely, sincerely? Are those appropriate words to describe the way that you approach the work that you do? Or would folks, you know, tell me about him as an employee. Would they say, well, he's kind of lazy. They, would they say, you know, she's, she's kind of like partially committed here. You know, she spent a lot of her time, you know some organization she's involved in doing that work instead of the job that we hired her to do. But at least she gets her job done or whatever. Is that how they would describe you? Would they say, he or she, you or her, you do enough just to get by? Just enough that they don't fire you from there? Well, that's a problem. I think a third question is, again, from verse 24. He says, whatever you do, do it heartily. As to the Lord, who are you ultimately working for? is the question that you should be asking. Who are you ultimately working for? And obviously the answer should be, as a Christian, it should be ultimately, I work for Jesus. That sounds like, oh, that's cute. It's not cute. <laughs> uh, it is cute. But it's real. It is real. Ultimately, at the end of the day, at the beginning of the day, you can go in and you say, Lord, I want to work in such a way today that you are pleased. And at the end of the day, you can come out of your place of work and get, hop into your car or on the bus, whatever it is, and you could say, Lord, I do hope that you were honored today. And if he lays an error in your heart, I was for the most part, but. Well, then deal with that the next day, that but. At the end of the day, was God honored? And honestly, if God is honored by your labor, there's a very good chance your boss is going to be like, great job. That was awesome. He or she's going to be pleased. Lastly, in the, from this Colossians passage, is what are we looking to for our ultimate reward? And so we go in and we say, Lord, I want to honor you today. I want you to be pleased by my day here today. 
okay, well, at the end of the day, who are you ultimately, what are you ultimately looking to for your reward? So if you're going to be, I'm going to be the best employee here because I want to get ahead. Or I'm going to be the best employee here because I want to win the boss's favor and, you know, he'll let me have off when I need off and she'll let me do this when I need that and they'll give me a raise. If that's your ultimate goal, I'll tell you this, you're probably going to be let down. And you're going to find yourself starting to do things and you're going to hold off on doing this because the boss is not here to see that you're the one doing this. You're an eye, doing it for eye service. You're doing it to be a man pleaser. You can approach work that way if you want to by trying to get ahead, trying to get a raise. I'll, do, I'll be a great employee just for these particular reasons. But I suspect inevitably you're going to be let down. Your boss isn't going to notice. Your boss is going to, or perhaps notice, you know, there's 10 other people doing the same thing you're doing. Or your boss is going to be busy with other things and not paying attention to you. And you're ultimately going to be disappointed. And even worse than that, you're ultimately going to be embittered. And you're going to begin to say things like, well, then what's the use here? I'll just put in my time and get out of this place. I'm not doing anything extra. Well, again, when you, walk, when you got on that bus, or when you got into your car, and you prayed that little prayer, Lord, I want you to be honored and blessed by my work here today. That's what should be ultimately our goal. Because if your labor is unto the Lord, then you can always rest confidently that he's watching, that he sees, that he takes notice. And he says that there in verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the ward of the inheritance for you serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Does that mean you'll get a promotion? It might. You, you probably will. You'll probably become a good employee and feel like you're awesome. Does it mean you'll get a raise? It may, but there's no guarantee necessarily of it. If you work in such a way, does that mean God will be honored and pleased? Yes, it does. And that's ultimately what we're striving for. Paul gave some similar instructions. This is from the book of Ephesians. He says this. He says, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. Notice, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Would you be a different employee if Jesus was your boss, literally? Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with, good will, with a good will as unto the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or free. A couple takes, takeaways. Notice some words like honor, respect, sincerity of heart. He says, not by way of eye service, not as a people pleaser, but unto the Lord. Ultimately, the one we really work for is the Lord. And we want to give him both honor and an honest day's labor. Paul gave some instructions to Titus in another pastoral epistle. This is from the second chapter of that book. He said this, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing. They are to be not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God. Keyword, submissive, not argumentative, not pilfering. Uh-oh. Do you waste time at work? Do you pilfer? She doesn't. Good for her. Uh, do you pilfer money from your boss? You're getting paid 15 an hour, 20 an hour, whatever it might be. You're getting paid a certain amount an hour, but you're not working many portions of those hours. You're pilfering from him or her. He goes on, he says there about showing all good faith. Are you honest? 
at work? Are you trustworthy at work? Are you stealing from work? These are the characteristics here Paul gives. Are they characteristics that would describe you? Paul goes on in that Titus passage there. Notice at the end of it, he says, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And that's that point again that I was making earlier. When people at your work, whether it's your boss or your coworkers, when they assess you as an employee in light of your profession of faith as a Christian, does it leave them thinking, hmm, maybe I should give this Christianity thing some thought? Or does it leave them thinking, huh, Christians? We want, obviously, the former, not the latter. We are called to work in such a way that the doctrine of God, the teaching about God, who God is, what kind of impact he can have on our lives, is more attractive and not less. Now, all of that is sort of under this assumption that your master stinks. You're still going to honor him. Your master's an unbeliever. They don't treat you fairly, all that kind of stuff. The second area that Paul addresses is, well, what if you work for a Christian employer? That's awesome, right? Because then, if you're a Christian and they're a Christian, then you don't really even have to work hard anymore. Because they're a Christian, they'll understand. We can just sit around, we can read our Bibles and spend time praying. And, you know, we don't have to do any physical work anymore because they'll understand they're a Christian. Well, let's ask the Christian employer (laughs) what they think about that. Soon they're just going to hire unbelievers to come because they need work done. Somebody's got to build that wall and take out that trash. So he says this, those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. So he already told us Christians should honor their non-Christian masters. Here he's telling us that Christians should honor their Christian masters. And now we might look at that and go, well, of course. Of course you're going to respect your brother or sister in the Lord. Unfortunately, a problem that Timothy was going to have to deal with, that Paul was dealing with, what was developing was as two servant, or two people sat side by side at church, the servant and the master, the employer and the employee, or employee and employer, as they sat side by side, it was carrying over to the workplace as well. Where, look, man, we're brothers at church. Like, you can't tell me what to do now. We're brothers, not boss and employee. The danger that Paul addresses here is that the employee would begin to take advantage of the employer because that guy's a brother. So things like this. Well, the boss will understand if I don't get my work done because I was witnessing to the unsaved co-workers that I work with. Well, that's great. I'm glad you're witnessing to those unsaved co-workers. Do me a favor. Meet up with them at 5 after service. Well, i got to get home. i got things to do. Well, i got work to do, and I hired you to do that work. And so the person might assume, well, of course my boss is going to be okay with me not working so that I can witness to other people. Here's another one. I cut, you come in late for work, or you have a break, and you come back late from the break because oh, I, just had, I was having this great time of prayer. And, man, I was just lost in God and the Spirit, and, and that's why I've been out two hours. I was reading this passage. I, I think Warren Wearsby, he said, I think it was Warren Wearsby, but perhaps somebody else. He said, three chapters in the book of John while sitting on the John is not appropriate at work. 
And I was like, okay, all right, that makes sense, uh, I guess. It's a little yuck, but um, makes some sense there. And so you, my boss will understand. No, your boss hired you to work. So we have these Christians thinking they could do less than their very best and that their boss would be okay with it. Notice Paul commands the exact opposite, that the Christian's approach should be even more honorable, so to speak, uh, when they work for a Christian. He gives three reasons. The first is this. Look at verse 2. He says, because they're your brother or your sister in the faith. He said, those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. So your affinity and your respect for them should be greater, not less, because they share an eternal relationship with you, he says. Secondly, he goes on, and it's really the last point that he makes, but I'm going to hit it secondly. At the end there, he says, because those who benefit for their good service are believers and beloved. God loves them. They're his children. How do you feel when someone mistreats someone you care about, like parents, for instance? If somebody mistreats your kid, how do you feel about that? Ah, they'll be fine. No, you probably want to get involved, particularly when they're little and, and helpless or whatever. You want to get involved there. It bothers you, at the very least. Well, these are God's kids, and you're mistreating them. And then finally, he says, also in the, the end there of verse 2, he says, because those who benefit by their good service are believers. Now, listen, God has, and we're not going to touch on it today, but God has plenty to say to the employer as, as to how they are to, to treat their employees. And again, we'll, we'll talk about that when we come to that, that topic here. But the fact is this, if those employers are implementing the things that God says to them, then everybody at that place of business is going to be blessed because those employers are honoring their employees and they're treating them in such a way as God is instructing them to do so. And so those that work for them can expect to experience those benefits. Paul here is telling these Christian employees, look, work hard for your Christian employers because in doing so, ultimately, you're going to be blessed, he or she's going to be blessed, all your co-workers are going to be blessed. God has a plan. That's why he speaks into every area of our lives. He has a plan. And here now this one Christian is hindering, the Christian employee, is hindering that plan from being carried out because of their insubordination in the place of work. Thinking like, well, we're all brothers anyway. What's the difference? Paul says, no. Do what you need to do. Do it properly. And God will pour out his blessing on all involved. He, I'm going to end with this. He says this. Don't be disrespectful because they're brothers. Rather, they must serve. Now, literally, that's worded this way. It says, uh, rather, they must slave. So you could say this. A slave should slave for his master. And so along with all the other admonitions that we've considered this morning, we can add this final admonition is this. If your boss is a believer, be careful that you don't take advantage of that relationship to the detriment of the company. You were hired to slave, to be a servant, so be one. And in, instead of expecting special privileges, instead of expecting concessions, they'll understand I'm a Christian just like they are, as a Christian, you ought to be the best employee at your place of business. Now, you may not be the smartest and the most skilled and you know, the most able and all these other kinds of things, 
But you can be the most honest. You can be the most hardworking. You can be the most trustworthy. You can be the most diligent. Those are things that you can control. He tells us, serve unto the Lord, that the Lord would be honored and that the Lord would be glorified. And isn't that our goal? It should be. And perhaps you, yeah, of course, when I'm with my family, of course, when I'm at church, of course, when maybe you haven't applied it to your place of business. I am absolutely convinced, I think that's what Paul's getting at, that the Lord would have us to do so. You spend a lot of time at your place of business. You probably interact with people there more than you do some of your family members, particularly those that aren't even in your home, and in many cases, those in your home. Because you get home at 5, everyone's in bed by 9, you've had four hours with them. You're eight hours at your place of business. Honor the Lord even there. Amen, friends? Amen. Amen. Thank you for your attention. Let's pray. Father, we, we want to give you glory. Lord, I think a lot of times as, as Christians, there's sort of this message that is out there that of what we gain you know, by, by, by being Christians. I'll be happier. I'll have more peace. I'll have for, sin forgiven. God will bless me, and I'll get a new car. All these kinds of things. And a lot of times that follows, Lord. But ultimately... We've been brought into right relationship with you to give you honor and glory, the honor and glory that you deserve. And Lord, we can do that through the words we speak. We can do that through the way we respond to our children and our parents and our husband and our wives, our neighbors. And we can even do that without saying a word at our place of business. in the school that we're studying at. And so, Lord, that's what we want to do. That's what I'm purposing myself to do afresh. I think, I'm hoping that that's what all of us in this room are purposing to do as we go about our day tomorrow, is to utter that prayer, Lord, be honored and blessed by my work today for your glory. And, Lord, we believe you, would be, you will be pleased as a result. And so bless this congregation as we go forth, we ask in your name. Amen.